So we're going to read the first half of the chapter, of the first chapter of Romans, and then we're going to see how it summarizes the first four, even potentially five chapters of the book of Romans. I'll read it to you. This is a letter by Paul to the church in Rome, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We pray that some miracle might take place that this becomes more than words on a page but it becomes the word of a God who is not dead but is working and active and his word always is like he is never returning without accomplishing the task I want to set forth for you what I think the Bible teaches us here about some principles of the gospel that is what the gospel is, and why it is essential. For the next six weeks, we want to dig into the themes across the course of the Bible that give the church its identity, who we are, what we talk about, what we are here to accomplish, what it is that God has called us to be, and what it is that God has called us not to be, what we ought to look like in the world, the ways in which we ought to stand out from the world, and the way that we exist for the sake of the world. I want you to see this, and, and here's what I, I think I think we want to accomplish. I'll come back to this as we close. I don't simply want to make a case for why we do the things the way we do. I don't want to just stand here and justify why our church is the way that it is. 
Instead, what I want to share with you is a biblical vision for what people of God look like so that you will not be able to refuse it. Not just so that you will be like, oh, this is what this church is about. Now that I know that, that's good. No, I want you to realize that without this, the church ceases to exist. If we don't begin to invest in this, if if we're not willing to lay down our own time, our own talent, and our own treasure to see this come to life around us, then it will fail and you will live in disobedience. I believe this so strongly that I'll say this in the end as well. My hope for you is that you will see this as the biblical identity of the church such that you will pour your life out and into this in the life of our church. I believe it so strongly that if you disagree with me, I'm actually okay with that. But then I want you to go and we want to send you to be a part of the church that does this better than us. If you don't think that God has called you to do this and bring this to life here, that's great, but you're not done there. God has called you to do this. What I want you to see is not simply me and my opinions about the church. I want you to see what the Bible tells us gives us identity. I don't want you to argue with me. I want you to see the word of God. So let's define this. Let's let's see what Paul wants to teach us. I want to give you a few things that I, I want to accomplish over the next few weeks. I want your heart, first and foremost, to be like swollen up, to be completely filled with what Jesus has accomplished for you. I want this to to fill you so greatly that it overflows. The biblical gospel, what God has done for us in Jesus, overflows into worship. An emaciated gospel leads to emaciated worship, such that when we stand up here, sing songs, and declare in a loud voice, right, that Jesus is something, if you find yourself going like, meh, then you're missing it. You're missing, you've either, you've either completely underestimated the nature of God or you've completely overestimated your own merit. Because when we say that Jesus has accomplished something on our behalf that gives us eternal reward, it leads to an overflow of gratitude and worship. So if you find yourself in a place where, man, I just, I don't really, I don't really love God. I'm not excited about who God is. I want to give you the resources by which that can be changed. The second thing I want to accomplish, I want us to have a deeper confidence in this gospel such that we can talk to others about it. We call this a gospel fluency, the ability to, in any place or any time, see the implications of the gospel and then share and speak of it fluently. Now, this is an art and not a science, right? There's no no one-size-fits-all, but every single opportunity we believe is for him and through him and to him, such that all things lead for the good and the glory of God and, and the joy of his people. Every situation, even last, when you went to, to hy V, when you, when, when you went to, to, to grab a red box, all those things you thought were for you, we want you to begin to see are actually moments in time where God means to get the glory. Places and opportunities that God gives you to draw people's attention to him. And I want you to grow in your understanding of the gospel and therefore your ability to explain it, to talk about it, Maybe not that you would answer all the questions. Can you answer all the questions about Jesus? No, but I do think we find here that you can answer the most important ones. Thirdly, I want you to see how vital the gospel is for the life of the church. That is, if this isn't our central focus, if what God has accomplished for us in Jesus isn't our primary task, then we'll cease to exist. I want you to want to work toward seeing to it that the gospel is preached, it's sung, it's prayed, it's taught, it's proclaimed, it's heard, it's lived out in every single aspect of the life of our church. 
It is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God has been made evident to the entire universe, according to Ephesians 3. How? How is this? By the preaching and the declaration and living out of the gospel. Fourthly, I want to solidify the gospel message in your mind and your heart so that you can also begin to identify what it is not. So that the good news that our culture might want to sell you might in fact be a cheapening of what Christ really has done. We don't want to dull the edges of the gospel. We want it to be sharp where it ought to be. So if you're not a believer in, in Jesus, maybe if you wouldn't call yourself a believer, I'm glad you're here. Because I want you to hear on, on its merit what it is that we believe. I, I want you to see what we as Christians are pouring our lives out for. What we believe gives us a sense of purpose and I doubt. I want you to hear, I, I don't want you to, to reject some fake version of what it is that we believe and walking away with a, with a false kind of sense of pride and skepticism. If you're going to be skeptical, I want you to be skeptical about the real thing. I want you to hear the genuine article. I want you to hear what the Bible tells us Jesus has done for us. And if you're going to be skeptical and ask those kinds of questions, let's begin there. So Paul begins. I want to walk through what Paul wants to tell us and verse by verse, maybe, maybe idea by idea, build up onto what he gives as a crescendo for the introduction of this book, this letter to the Romans, that he's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew, and even to the Greek, every single person. It's the righteousness of God, and it's revealed by faith or for faith, from faith, for faith. So he begins, Paul, identifying himself. I think this is a way to draw, maybe and to create some intimacy with the church that he's writing to in Rome. You'll see other different letters in the New Testament. For instance, to Philippians, most of these letters, he greets the people in the plural, like he says, Paul and Timothy, or Paul and someone else. And he greets them, but in this case, he writes himself as if he's kind of, kind of just saying, this is a personal letter. This, is, this isn't just a, a group text. This is something I, I'm going to write directly to you from me. This is from Paul. We, see, we find out, have you, have you read there, like he hasn't even met these people. Now, this is exciting for us because we think that, uh, that Rome was probably, the churches that were, were starting to, to pop up in Rome weren't planted by Paul, like many of the other churches, toward the end of the book of Acts, but they were planted by churches that were planted by Paul. They were probably started by Christians that had been scattered by, by the persecution beginning in Acts chapter 6, or the churches that Paul did plant around Asia and Europe eventually sent out, like, like the ones in Antioch, they sent out people to start more churches. That's important for us. He's writing to a church he's never actually hung out with. He doesn't know these people. Did you catch that? I'd love to come see you. I've been trying to come visit you. We find out in the book of Acts what really happens, that he does finally make it to Rome, but it's not the way he wishes. In fact, that's where tradition tells us that he's beheaded. He appeals to Rome. He wants to make it to Rome. So he's probably writing this letter somewhere along the lines of planting churches that are also planting churches toward Rome. He starts with a word. He says, a servant. And this is important. This isn't necessarily the word that, or the way we would use a servant today. Uh, this word doulos, this, this, this implication here is of indentured servitude, even slavery. A doulos was someone who was beneath, someone who was uh, in a different status beneath someone else. They had a master. So it wasn't just like someone who's, I don't know, waiting tables out of their own goodwill, but this word here implies servitude, a sense of obligation that you cannot get out of, 
a sense of servitude that goes to your core. Like you are bound to this. You are a slave in this. He says, I am a servant. Who am I a servant of? A slave of who? Christ Jesus. I'm a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus. Called to be an apostle. So this is one of the most important words that we see throughout the entirety of the New Testament. So we'll talk about uh, the life and, and the identity of the church. And, and the word church, as we talk about, is often a word that's really messed up in our English language. In fact, the word church is a derivative of a word that, that's talking at a, about a building or an edifice where, get, where people get together. What you'll find in the New Testament is the church is never referred to with respect to time or location, such that we would even say there's a big difference between going to church and belonging to a church. Because the word church that's used throughout the Bible, the word ecclesia, is like the word team. Right? You can't go to team. Team is not a location, but a team can't have an identity, it can't have a mission, it can't have a purpose. You can be on a football team, a drill team, pick the team, but you can't go to team, but you can belong to it. Now where does that come from? This word right here, it says called to be an apostle. That word called is the word kletos, where we get our word poorly over the history of the church, translated church, ecclesia, right? So Kletos turns into ek. You know what ek is, right? Ek is, turns into our out, right? Ex, expel, cast out, explode, to blow out and up, right? So, so to go ex or out, called kletos, ekklesia. That's, that's the church. The church is the called out people. If you hear nothing, the church is the called out people. Why is this word important? Because he's identifying with their identity. So much so that he'll say it again. He says, I am called to be an apostle. My identity is not in what I have chosen to be. My identity is not in a vocation that I have, I have opted to live out. My identity is in what God has called me to be. That's important. Because that very idea is what gives the church its identity. They're the called out people. They are the ones assembled for a purpose. They're gathered together with a function, not by something they determine for themselves, but by something that God has called them to be and to do. That's who we are. It's, it's rooted in this. this. Paul wants us to see from the, very, from the very beginning, his identity is in what God's called him to be, and therefore our identity as people who are changed by this gospel is what God has called us to be as well. Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So now we have our word. Now we've found our word, the word that we see over and over and over again in the New Testament, the word that you'll hear us say over and over and over again, the word that we want to expound upon, the word that we want to be at the center of everything we do. Very literally, the word gospel just means good news. Good news. But it's a specific type of good news. You see, the good news, as the Romans would have understood it, has a specific context. You see, the good news that they would have declared the history books tell us the word euangelion translated here gospel that means literally good news was something that roman soldiers sentries and messengers and even citizens would use to describe roman victory so whenever the roman empire would scatter and and would spread to one more place right go watch uh, go watch gladiator okay 
right? And whenever the Roman Empire would have another victory, right? The Pax Romana, remember the, the peace brought about by the Roman army, right? The peace brought by the sword. And whenever they would conquer a new territory, take it over, assimilate its culture, but give it a new sense of identity, a new rulership, a new king, a new loyalty, they would say, good news. They would declare the good news of Caesar's victory, the good news of the scattering and spreading of the Roman Empire. And Christians have come along and they completely flip the script. They completely hijack the term. And instead of saying, oh yeah, good news, Caesar has now come and you're subject to him, they completely rip this upside down, don't they? And they say, no, 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 you don't get the good news. Yes, a king is coming and his kingdom is near. Turn and believe and, and change the way you live because this new king is coming, but this king is different. This king doesn't send his subjects out to die for his conquests. This king runs in front of the army to die in its place so that no one would experience death again. This king and his kingdom are upside down such that the good news of this victory of this king actually is good news. Up to this point, they would have come along and said, good news, the the Roman Empire is now taken over. Now, Caesar is your king. Well, that's great if you like Caesar. If you're not one of the people that were killed, raped, and pillaged along the way to Caesar taking over, you're right. That's pretty good news. But if not, then you see the disconnect. Is it really good news that Caesar comes to take over everything? But if you knew that Caesar was coming to take over your life, if you knew, if you knew it was inevitable, if you knew you couldn't do anything, your loyalty would change, wouldn't it? You'll have a choice. You'll either fight to the death and Caesar will make an example out of you, maybe hang you on a cross, or you'll assimilate and you'll say, you're right, let's be friends with the new king. And your choice that the Roman government gave was either to fight to the death, which Caesar was happy to give, Right? Okay, you want to die? for? Go ahead. Here you go. We'll do that. We have lots of armies to do that. Or you could say, you know, there's a new king coming. I think we might want to change our loyalties. Maybe we want to be less loyal to the old king. Maybe turn away from our loyalty to, to the previous king and turn toward a loyalty to the new king. But now you get it, don't you? Now you get what is happening. Now you get what Paul is implying when he says that he's been set apart for the good news of God, for the good news of his kingdom that a new king is coming and he is taking over. By all means, relinquish your authority or relinquish your loyalty to the old king because the new king that is coming is coming back and he's different than any other king. And if you want to be used as an example, then God will use you as an example to demonstrate his wrath, to demonstrate his justice on your life and mine forever and ever. But if you see this king and what he's accomplishing and what he wants to do and the kingdom he wants to create, then we, the word the New Testament uses, repent, we turn away from old loyalty to a new loyalty to the new king. So some of this language that the, you see the church using on a regular basis is all boiled down into this concept that we call the good news, the gospel. Paul is set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son. 
So here we go. We, we begin to define now what is the gospel. If we're going to be a people, and we use the buzzword often that is gospel-centered, uh, that is the gospel gives us identity, then Romans 1 gives us at least a beginning definition. Now here's where I get to encourage you. Am I able, in the time that we have together, to summarize and fully and comprehensively explain to you what God has done for us in Jesus Christ? No. I don't have the time. I don't have the words. I don't have the vocabulary. It's like trying to measure, I don't know, the Grand Canyon with, with a yardstick, right? It's, it's not that you can't do it. It's just that you're going to die trying, right? It's not that it's impossible. It's just that you're not the one to do it. So you'll be like, well, so am I going to distill and boil down and explain all of the good news of Jesus in this time together? No. And that's good news also. You know why? Because that's what you and I are going to be doing for the rest of our lives. And so if I don't cover something, if I don't get everything, if the gospel isn't fully made manifest and clear to you, this is the cool part of having the gospel as the central focus of the life of our church. We'll keep doing it. Like next week, we'll do it again. And the gospel truth, the good news of what God has done for us, it gives us identity and joy in the midst of suffering. You know, we'll celebrate again the week after that. This, we're like a band that plays one song. One song, all the time. So what is the gospel? Let's begin to at least ask Romans 1, before he has this crescendo, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's this. Here we go. Romans 1 tells us first, beginning with the word which in verse 2. Did you catch that? So set apart for the gospel of God. The corresponding, the corresponding relative pronoun here, the which, goes to the gospel. So we're talking about the gospel. What, what in verse 2 is the gospel? First, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures. So the gospel, which has been prophesied about, it's been promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures, is something that we're also excited about. So we actually believe that the Old Testament is full of promises and prophecies that are finally and fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ, such that we open them as well. I know it's crazy. We open books that are thousands of years old to talk with writers that are, that are from a completely foreign country, foreign era, foreign culture. Why do we do that? Paul tells us. Because in it, we begin to see the seed of the gospel, the promises of God, before Jesus came, there were already promises being made. There was a, a plan, a prophecy to be fulfilled. So the first thing we realize about the gospel is that the gospel is in its seed form, it's promised throughout the scriptures. So that even when we open the Bible and think we're talking about something that might be not related to Jesus, we find out that it's actually a seed planted that fruitfully blows up, explodes exponentially in Jesus. Right? Jonah. Right? That's a book about obedience, right? Jonah. Jonah is like, God, go, go to Nineveh. God says, God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah's like, I don't want to. And he's a racist. Turns out he hates the people in Nineveh. And so he gets on a boat to go to Tarshish, another place. He's disobedient and rebellious, right? And so he's kicked out of the boat and miraculously a fish swallows him up and takes him to where God meant him to be the whole time. He goes, he preaches the good news of God's love to the people. They repent. Thousands of people come to love God, but he's still a deep hateful racist and a, and, a, and, a, and a hateful person. And so the, the story ends with Jonah. He's like, I hate this place. Now, we think that Jonah eventually repents. Otherwise, he wouldn't have written the book. Just me talking. But, but if we're not careful, we'll, we'll make that story about us, right? And you'll be like, well, you better not rebel against God, right? And then 
And then we, when we, if, if we're not careful, we'll just turn the Bible into a high school yearbook. We'll open it up and try to find ourselves in it. And we'll open up even in like the book of Jonah and we'll go, that's about me. I need to, I need to obey God. Otherwise, he's going to swallow me with a fish. Well, that's great. Uh, except that that's just not the whole story. And that doesn't even reflect the character of God at all. In fact, we find out Jesus can be made visible and even in the story of Jonah. This is going to be fun. Jesus is the bigger and greater Jonah. Right? The story, there's all these people and, and they, they look around and they go, we're going to die in this storm unless we find out who sinned against God. And they realize that their sin is weighing heavy on them and they're about to die. And so they cast lots and it falls on Jonah. And so they have to cast out, because of his sin, they cast out someone to save the rest. Oh, snap. Oh, no, this isn't about me. And then what happens, right? Now, this is where we usually stop and just argue about whether or not we really believe a big fish could swallow a person and they survive. Argue all you want, but this is really cool. You know what happens? Jonah's thrown into the ocean, and Jesus is the fish that delivers him by miraculous means three days later to where God wanted him all along. Oh no! It's not about you, is it? Do you get it? This is, I just picked one book. I just picked a common story. And we begin to see that the promises of God fulfilled for us in Jesus can be seen throughout the entirety of the Scripture. Now sometimes it's hard. Right? Sometimes you've got to sift through um, some, some genealogies and so-and-so begat so-and-so. It's cool, it's cool, uh, because you get to finally the firstborn of all creation, the begat, 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 was who? Jesus, the word that began the whole thing. Andy taught us about it last week. And the whole thing began with him. So we see that the gospel is promised in the scriptures. So that means we diligently dig through the scriptures. We'll pour over some spots that seem kind of boring and difficult. We'll, we'll get, okay, come on, we get, hang in there, hang in there. I know it seems weird to talk about a fish swallowing a man. That seems crazy, right? But hang in there because the good news is on the other side. And in fact, Jesus is the one who's thrown overboard for our sin. In fact, Jesus is the one who miraculously delivers you and me, rebellious folk, to where God wanted us to be all along, to tell a message to people that we don't even love. You get it? The second thing we see is that not only in verse 2 is the gospel promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, we see secondly that it is concerning his son. That is, the son of God. So he, who are we talking about? The gospel of God. The gospel which God, he. So he concerning his son. So the next thing, that we see as well, not only is it promised in Scripture, but it is about Jesus. We will always draw attention to Jesus. The gospel will always be about what he has done and who he is. And we will fight to the death for this. And any attempt to draw attention away from the finished work of Jesus towards something else is an offense toward the saving work of God. We won't politely agree to disagree on this one. This is about Jesus such that all the songs we sing are about Jesus. None of them are about you. All the prayers that we pray are to Jesus. All the things that we accomplish are for his glory, for his namesake. What is the gospel? It is the thing in seed form in the scripture, and it is the thing that is about the Son of God. So then we've got another reflexive pronoun here. Some of you 
grammar nerds like me get all excited about this. The rest of you just hang with me. Okay, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Right? So, in a sense, he was a descendant of David in that he's the lineage of the chosen people of God, namely David's people. But not really, right? we just saying that he was born of a virgin. The, the miraculous mix of somehow we, we begin to try to explain how God is on one hand working in Jesus and present in us, incarnate in Jesus, but on the other hand like a human being who dies, who gets, who gets like a tummy ache and throws up, right? Like we don't like thinking of God that way, but that, that's what we see is that the mystery of God is made manifest in us and the fullness and presence of God is visible in the fullness of a human being. So who? Who was descended from David? Now this is meant to identify Jesus with God's chosen people. This is meant, again, to call back to what God has been doing so that we're not sitting around thinking, well, I wonder where Jesus came from. He looks like a plan B. God was scared and sent Jesus uh, to, to fix up his mess. No, this, this is actually God's beginning this is God's work from the beginning. He chose Abraham. He set apart a Gentile to be a Jew for his glory. The, also, the who is not just that he's a descendant of David, according to the flesh, but did you catch how Paul put them both together? Verse 4, he was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. And he did, as a man, son of the lineage of David, specifically Mary. He did as a human being what only God could do, namely come back from the dead. And he did as a descendant of the Son of God what only a human being could do, and God could not die. And we see the fullness of God made manifest in Jesus. So what is the gospel? It's the thing that's promised about it. It's the thing that draws attention to the Son of God that is Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's a descendant of David according to the flesh, but he's also the Son of God in power. He's both fully God and fully man. We begin to see the, the understandings of the nature of Christ rooted right here in Romans chapter 1. Through whom? So what it is, what is it that God did, what is it that God did through Jesus, Son of David according to the flesh, and Son of God according to power? Through whom, verse 5, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So what is it that Christ has done for us? Christ has accomplished. Through Christ, we now have grace. Paul even has apostleship. God has called him to something greater. God has called him out of darkness. God has called him out of death. God has called him out of his sinfulness and to light and life and righteousness. Through whom God has now accomplished, through Jesus, God has now given us grace. But it says also, he is glorifying his name among the nations. This is important for us, because if this was just a Jewish sect that existed a couple thousand years ago, then we really got nothing to be excited about, right? I don't know if you were all born of Jewish descent, but I wasn't. And that's a problem, because if God is over here choosing his own people to glorify himself, to make himself known amongst this chosen nation, that's a problem. Because I wasn't born into that family. I don't know what you were born into. My family tree's kind of crooked. It's got a couple of, got a couple of criminal ali aliases that floating around a few generations back. I don't know what you're born into. It's not that pretty. It's not a beautiful lineage of chosen people of God. Good news. Because this Jesus is the mechanism, the means by which God is giving grace 
not just to people who were born into the right family, but people who were outcast, such that Ephesians tells us those that are far off have now been brought near. Those who were once aliens and refugees are now made family, adopted as children of the Most High God. But also, according to verse 7, we weren't just, or excuse me, verse 6, we weren't just through Jesus given grace and not just extended grace because of his grace toward the nations, but also we find something interesting. This includes us. You see, up to this point, people are pretty comfortable to talk about who Jesus is and what he's done. Maybe argue about the historical facts. Maybe even kind of debate whether or not he is who he says he is or he did what he said that he was going to do. Up to this point, we can kind of say, all right, well, all right, I get what you're saying. Jesus is this. That's good for you. But this is where it gets interesting because up to this point, you could probably, as a healthy skeptic, say, what has that got to do with me? Verse 5 answers that question. Through whom now we have grace and apostleship to bring the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are, I don't know if you call, you're going to use that word again, you are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Who are you? Is it who you say you are? Is it what you've accomplished? Is it what you have achieved? Have achieved? Or is it possible, verse 6 tells us, that you are now included by what God has called you to be through Jesus Christ. And he has called you to belong, to be his possession, to be united with him. To all those in Rome, you're loved by God. But what did he do again in verse 7? You're called again to be saints. Grace to you and peace from the God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So then he goes on for the next few verses, kind of reminiscing on who they are and how excited he is to one day come and see them. He wants to hopefully reap a harvest. That means an investment. He wants them to invest again in, in the mission that God has given them to, to take the gospel to the nations. But then he gets to something as kind of a, a, a closing crescendo that I want us to end on, beginning in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. I want you to see here, the gospel made clear to us again. He's not ashamed of it. In fact, it's the thing that he wants to do. Verse 14, he says, I'm under no obligation both to Greeks and to, excuse me, I am under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians, right? So if you think, well, I'm not that bad, or you think I'm too bad, God doesn't really love me, well, at least you're not a barbarian, whatever that means. So, so even if you're a barbarian, he says he's under compulsion to share good news with you, both to the wise and to the foolish. So maybe you're not educated, maybe you're not that bright, maybe we're talking about something that's complicated, it's complex, and the learning curve for you is really steep. That's cool. The good news of Jesus isn't just for smart people. In fact, it's for foolish people. And if you find yourself going, I'm not that bright, you're in great company. Join the club. Join us. The foolishness of God made to confound the wisdom of this world, both the wise and the foolish. So he's compelled. Why? Verse 15 tells us, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Well, but this was apparently to Christians. Why do they need to hear the gospel? Because they are the ones that are most likely to forget it. They're the ones that need to be reminded of it. So he is therefore not going to be ashamed of it. He's going to repeat it. 
He's going to call their attention back to it. And when it seems like they're tired of it, he's still not going to be ashamed of it. For it is this. It is the power of God for salvation. So here's what we see. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You, you already begin to see, like, I would, I would call a fourfold picture of what God is doing here. It's, it's the power of God. Again, if, if what you, when asked the question, why are you a Christian? How do you know that you are saved, that you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus? Think of something that you have done. You might be mistaken. So if someone asks you, how do you know you're a Christian? And you think about something that you have done, beware, you might be mistaken. What we find here that we celebrate as Christians is the power of God to do something. In fact, if, if, you're, if, if you don't like that thought, if you're like, well, I can do this, I, I can pull my own self up by my bootstraps, I encourage you, if you get a chance over the next couple of years, read this book. It's a really cool story about people who think they can get it right. And it starts with people that had one job. Don't eat the fruit. And what, what were they able to accomplish? Given their one job, you, you have to do one thing, and they couldn't do it. And that's where the story would end for me. If I'm God, well, that was a good try. Let's try this again. Let's make something else. But that isn't any of the story, is it? And on and on and on. The people rebel against God, and God gives them a chance to be reconciled to them. And they run against God. They, they run away from Him. They don't want anything to do with God. And what does He do? He pursues them. He chases after them and draws them back to themselves. Back to Himself. He, they throw off all the restraint. They don't want any part of God. And what does God do? He sends His own Son to take their place. God, in His relentless pursuit of His glory by demonstrating His grace on the lives of His people forever and ever came to take our place. It is the power of God God does it. What does it leave us? It says that it's the power of God for salvation. Now this is the part where, we, where it gets kind of messy with our own, our own culture. So we really believe that we were in a state that was bad and Jesus has now given us salvation. Right? We, we were in a place rebelling against God, fighting against his word, fighting against who he has called and created us to be, and that puts us under his wrath. That puts us under the punishment that we now deserve. Such that we now are, like, in a, in a profound way, crushed by the awareness of our own sinfulness. We know that God is holy and perfect and that we are not. And that we now need to be saved. God, by his power, draws us back to himself by Jesus Christ. How does he do that? How does what he has done in Jesus connect to us? says it right there. We believe, we trust, our eyes are open, not only, not only that, that, that Jonah was cast off the boat for our salvation, but we now rejoice that it wasn't us. We rejoice that, that someone else paid our penalty. Someone else took our place. Someone else was given the wrath that we deserved. And when our eyes are open to it, we believe and we trust in it. We find our identity in it. And we know that it is the truth that gives us meaning. It stirs in us emotions. It stirs our intellect. It stirs our sense of identity. Not only is it salvation for everyone who believes, he counters that to the Jew and to the Gentile, right? So that, so that you wouldn't be mistaken, Jew and to the Greek, not just for a certain people, but for all people. We find out it's not just for the people that God has selected and chosen, but it's actually 
by those people, Jesus delivers God's adoption to all the nations. To the point where in Revelation we find that all the nations gather together and celebrate who he is. It's also God's righteousness revealed for faith. It says, for in it, that is the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So the goodness and perfection of God that you and I do not deserve is accessible to us and revealed to us. How is it? Through faith. We trust that what God has done for us in Jesus is complete. For as it is written now, the last thing we see that the gospel does, it doesn't just open our eyes to this and transform this. We now live by it. Live by it. So see the fourfold uh, you'll see me boil this down. Maybe, maybe it doesn't all the way fit into this, but kind of you see a picture of God, a picture of human beings, a picture of what Christ has done, and then a picture of our response. First, you see the nature of God made clear. It is the power of God for salvation. So if you're a skeptic in this room, and maybe you're having a hard time even just to believe that God is real, I'm glad you're here because we really believe God is real. And, and, and I think I can start with some, some, some ground to, to begin to discuss this. So, so if you'll start with even just, I don't believe God is real. All right, well, let's start with something we can agree on. You don't believe that God is real. Let's start with this. Would you agree that you're not God? Because I would agree with that. And that's actually a great place to start. In fact, the Bible tells us that's where we ought to start. One of the first things we ought to be able to admit is, I am not God. And that is a strange and powerful way to stir your faith in God. I don't know what you see when you look in the mirror, but when you admit, you are not God. Oh, you want to control everything today. Good luck, have fun, try as hard as you can, but you will come to the end of the day realizing the same truth. I'm not God. I don't know everything. I can't accomplish everything. So let's even begin there. And let's agree, we are not God. Therefore, the miraculous, the spectacular, the amazing things that God is doing here for us in Jesus are outside of our control and are rooted in something separate from us. And you can even just begin, look, I'm not God. I can't do this here. But secondly, you get to admit who we are. If you want to even skip through the next couple of chapters, you can look to the verse 18. We stopped. We come to find out who God is and we come to find out who people are. Verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it known to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they, the people that have rejected God, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. So the second thing I think we realize here, even if you're a skeptic, is the nature of human beings. Not just that you are not God, but here's the truth that even Oprah, who is not a Christian, believes. Something in this world is broken. Something has gone terribly wrong in this world. And people have an amazing capacity for evil things. And every time you think we have like plumbed the depths of the evil of people, 
they astound you. It says the reason is, is that because they saw God and ignored him, God turned them over to love things that don't deserve the glory that God alone deserves, but instead they begin to glorify other things and even themselves. Instead of praising God for who he is, they praise the things that God has created, such that now we are without excuse. Did you catch the nature of human beings before God? Hopeless, turned away from God, running from him. This is the easiest point to illustrate. If you're looking for an excuse to believe that people are not good, come, let's hang out. Let's just flip through the newspaper. We have an amazing capacity to destroy one another. So what? So Christ has done something. The third thing we see, skip to the very next chapter, Christ has done something. Christ has accomplished something. In verse 3, it's summarized in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God that we don't deserve has been made manifest apart from the law, that is, apart from your obedience. And although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, verse 22, chapter 3, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For now there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But get this in verse 24, are justified by his grace grace as a gift through the redemption that is in who? Jesus Christ. So begin to see the, the nature of God, the nature of human beings, and then the nature of what Christ has done for us. He has granted to us, taking our place, giving us all of the grace and glory and joy that he deserved and taking all the punishment and wrath that we deserve. Such that finally, Paul comes to a close summarizing the gospel in chapter 4. Now what do we do? How do we respond? What does that mean for us? Now to the one who works, person who is trying to earn something, he's saying here, the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So if you work for this, if you want to accomplish this, if it's not the power of God for salvation, great, you just get what you deserve. But verse 5, it says, to the one who does not work, but instead of working for this, believes that God has given it to him, in him who unjust, believes in him who, unjustif- who justifies the ungodly, his faith, that is our faith in the completed work of Jesus, is considered and counted as righteousness. You get it? This is the gospel, the nature of God, the nature of people, the accomplishment of Christ, and the repentance and faith that we now have and receive as a gift of God. We see God for who he really is. We see you and I in the mirror for who we really are. And then we realize that the only way that that can be made to be anything good, the only way that's not awful for eternity is that if Jesus fixes it. And we trust that he has. We turn away from our old loyalty and we embrace a new loyalty. This is what Christ has done. This is the gospel. This is the thing that we will talk about, we will unpack, we will celebrate, we will sing about forever and ever and ever. You and I are like Paul. We're like the servants, right? There's like a five-star chef in the kitchen, and it's Jesus, and he's made up something awesome, and he's done all the hard work, and all he's asked you and I to do is to put it on a plate and deliver it to the world. You don't have to cook it. You don't have to mess with it. Jesus, he's, man, he's perfect. He's righteous. He's just like God, and what he makes is good, and all he says to you and me is, I want you to take this, and I want you to share it. And this is the song we sing every single week. We're a band with one song. 
We're like a, we're like a dancer with one move. We, we don't have anything else. And so this is what I want to say to you. This, this is who we are. This is what will save you. You've come into this room with burdens, with, with struggles, with failures. And right now, you would like for me to give you anything else but Jesus to solve your problems. Someone hurt you and you wish I would go and off them and bury them in your backyard for you. And you know what I get to give you? Jesus. You have an awful boss and you want me to tell you, you know you should quit that. You should quit that and go to another job. And you know what I can't tell you? You know what's really hurt in you? The brokenness that only Jesus can repair. Ever seen someone try to solve problems by looking to something that's not a solution? Ever seen someone try to fix stuff and it only gets them more deeply into trouble? Do you hear it echoing now? This really is what will satisfy. And this, change, this changes drastically who we are. The church ceases to exist without the gospel at its center. If the power of God isn't the thing that's doing this, then we're wasting our time. Go buy a boat. Like, get a better hobby. Get a snowmobile. Because anything... Anything will be more fun than hanging around with a bunch of people who are preaching Christ while you're looking to satisfy yourself with something else. Get a better hobby, because this one will demand your life. It will grant you joy, but it will cost you everything, because we really believe this is the all-satisfying grace of God. It's the only thing that fixes everything. This also means that we as a church find identity in this. We as a church are frustratingly stubborn about this. Because if the church becomes about anything else, if the church is about your glory, our cleverness, if the church is about your pleasure, your comfort, this is what happens. This happens probably once every little bit, but this is the most recent one. There's a, a singer by the name of Marin Morris. Singer, songwriter, country singer. I encourage you, Google it. Marin Morris, and she's written this song that's kind of racing up the church. It's called My Church. Because if the gospel is at the center, then the glory of God and the joy of his people in Christ is what we'll talk about and sing about. But if it's not, then something else will be church. This is good. I've cussed on a Sunday, because it's triple point value if you cuss on a Sunday or in front of a pastor. I don't know if you know that. Write that down. Don't look for it in the Bible, but just trust me, okay? I've cheated and I've lied. I've fallen down from grace a few too many times. But I find holy redemption when I put this car in drive, roll the windows down, and turn up the dial. Can I get a hallelujah? Can I get an amen? Feels like the Holy Ghost running through you when I play that highway FM. I find my soul revival singing every single verse. Yeah, I guess that's my church. When Hank brings a sermon... And Cash leads the choir. I don't, what are they singing? A, a shot of man, a shot of man just to watch him die. Is that the Cash song we're talking about here? All right. It gets my cold, cold heart burning hotter than the ring of fire. It's a Cash reference for some of you. When this wonderful world gets heavy and I need to find my escape, I just keep the wheels rolling, radio scrolling until my sins wash away. Can I get a hallelujah? Can I get an amen? Feels like the Holy Ghost is running through you. And I play the Highway FM. Now that's silly, maybe. But if we don't find our identity in Christ, then friend, you will search for it somewhere else. 
you will be hungry for it elsewhere. You'll try to find another group of people. But here's what I can give you. Jesus gives us rivers of flowing water that satisfy that once we drink from them, we'll never thirst again. Such that you begin to be able to sniff out the fakes. Oh yeah, that's great. Because if you believe that everything exists for your glory, then you're right. You should seek your own pleasure and you should go do that. But when we realize that the power of God is the salvation for people who do not deserve it, such that now we're changed by it, now the church starts looking different. And the solution to all of our problems is the finished work of Jesus. And the minute that becomes secondary to our existence, and friend, we cease to exist. We are caught up under the wrath of God rather than defined by his mercy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness. Uh, We thank you for your mercy. Uh, God, we thank you uh, that you have called us to yourself, that you have now given us a sense of purpose and identity that we alone could not accomplish. Uh, We love you for this. We are confounded by this. God, we confess that we would like to make our lives about anything else but you. We would like to find our salvation. We would like to find our comfort and so many other things. Would you begin to show us even now how deeply unsatisfying those things are? Then in the end, they only feel right for a moment. So God, let us repent of our loyalty to those things. Let us turn away from those things and realize and receive the gift that you've given us in Jesus. If there's some in this room that maybe this is just a crazy thing to even contemplate and they bring skepticism, thank you, God, for bringing them here. Thank you for, in your mercy, drawing them into this room that they might begin to open their eyes and consider an alternate possibility. Would they begin by at least admitting that they are not God? Would we confess that when we are in control, we destroy things such that maybe, just maybe, we would consider what Christ has done for us. We realize it is the answer we've been longing for. It is the hope we have hungered for. It is the meaning in life that we have thirst for. Satisfy us with this now. For those of us who know this good news, maybe we've already been changed by this good news, but we just forget it. God, would you stir us up to no longer be ashamed of this good news, but to recognize that it's the work of God for sinful people accomplished, finished, paid in full by Jesus Christ such that now we have new joy new life forever and ever. Amen.